welcome to this RCP podcast, which we are doing on behalf of the Young Adult and Adolescent Steering Group at the RCP. Um, I'd like to introduce myself. I am Rowanna Wright. I'm a consultant in diabetes and endocrinology at St John's Hospital in Livingston and the Edinburgh Centre for Endocrinology and Diabetes. And I do quite a lot of work with young people through the diabetes service um, and through our uh, late effects service for endocrine patients as well. And I will hand over to my counterpart. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Rory Conn. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist and I work down in Exeter in liaison psychiatry, which is the interface of body and mind, really. I'm very interested in how physical health problems can affect mental health and also vice versa. You can find out a bit more about me and my work on my website, www.connectedchildhealth.com. So I thought I'd start with a bit of background as to why we decided to put this podcast together. I think Rory and I will be united in our feeling that adolescent health care, both physical and mental, is super important and that it is really important that we get things right during this period of life. This is where young people are starting to form their independent opinions and being and interactions really count during this period because if we don't get this right, it can have a potential negative impact as life progresses, particularly for people who have a long-standing long-term condition. And on the back of that, knowing that this was a very important area, we actually looked at a survey across all higher specialist trainees in the UK in medical specialties to ask how people felt in terms of their experience and training in adolescent health and dealing with young people and dealing with transition from paediatric services to adult services, because there probably are conditions in most medical specialties that do transition at some stage. What we identified was that there was a big gap in learning and a big gap in training. We also offered the option for free text for the trainees answering the survey. And many were very expressive and at telling us that they actually felt very uncomfortable and out of their depth in talking to young people. That therefore led us in the steering group uh, to decide that we needed to target this and try to plug that gap in training. So we hope that this podcast will be a way of bringing you into the fold and teaching you more about this important area. So I'm delighted to join because talking to young people is my is my day job and and talking and listening are the only real tools apart from occasional use of psychiatric medication. Um, we're going to cover some key take home messages as we as we see them. Uh, so the headlines really in advance. So we're going to think about transitions, about what that is, uh, why it can be difficult, why it can be rewarding when it goes well and what organisations can do to make healthcare developmentally appropriate. We might think of some case studies uh, around that. We will cover the communication strategies that you might uh, use, you might practice using in your clinical practice to make you better, in inverted commas, at talking to young people. And then we'll probably think specifically as well about mental health because, uh, well, firstly, I'm here, and secondly, because it's inescapable at the minute, the, uh, the escalating, uh, requirements and demands of mental health in, in young people, sadly. And uh, that's probably where we will find ourselves at the end of this of this conversation. I think we kind of wanted to think about transitions first because it's a it's a major topic and it's 
and it's difficult. And I wondered whether I would begin by giving sort of some ideas about adolescence generally, um, if that's all right. Um, so I think we might all have different ideas of adolescence um, in our mind. And the fact is, it's it's ill-defined. It's not a adolescence isn't a legal term. It's not a biological term. Um, although there's a biological concept, isn't there, about the moving from a child's body into an adult's one. But really, adolescence is a, more, more than anything, it's a societal, a cultural construct. And adolescence looks different in different cultures. So uh, for a long time, it used to be uh, quite a rapid period of perceived transition. Um, actually, in lots of cultures, it's extending and, and adolescence is longer than it was, partly because uh, young people going into puberty earlier, actually, but also because um, people are in education later than perhaps they were before, and the transitions to leaving home and becoming truly independent are coming later because people are being longer dependent on their parents and their carers. And actually, the, the American psychologist, uh, the first president of the American Psychology Association, described adolescence as a time of stress and storm. That's a bit controversial because it, it's not that the case for everyone, but we can all bring to mind, presumably, patients where we have seen components that look pretty stressful and pretty stormy. And I might ask perhaps, Rana, whether you've got any patients that spring to mind for whom adolescence has been tricky with their medical care. Yeah, so um, so diabetes being my my main point of reference um i'll chat about a young man who was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes in the middle of his adolescence um at around 15 years old um this had come right out of the blue he'd been healthy through his younger childhood years and he had a very loving set of parents and brother and sister and it really came as a big shock to the family when uh, he was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes after a very short period of illness he was initially looked after by our paediatric colleagues uh, as he was under 16 when he presented to the acute hospital in, in, our, in our trust that involves uh, an admission to the paediatric hospital. And he really found it hard to engage with the paediatric team to, to accept his diagnosis. It was very much an ostrich situation where the head was firmly implanted uh, in the sand. He, his parents really struggled to get their heads around it and they desperately wanted to support him. But it actually became a real um, tool of destruction in the family dynamics, I think, uh, where the parents were uh, contacting the paediatric team repeatedly for help and advice. Uh, the paediatric team were trying to provide that, but actually the young man himself was really struggling to communicate and be heard and uh, and work with the paediatric team and also work with his parents. Uh, relations all round were really disrupted. We had a big team meeting about that, thinking that at the moment things, things were not going well um, and we wanted to try and improve things. And it was felt that a, a change of team might actually be really, really beneficial to him. So we decided to take him through to our young person's transition clinic, which we wouldn't usually do so early on in diagnosis. But uh, we thought that an adult type of approach might suit his personality and his issues better. So he was introduced to us in the adult service, along with our adult nursing colleagues, 
And what we found worked best for him uh, after discussing it with him was uh, an independent consulting situation where he would come in alone um, to work with us, to work through the issues, to try and help him with acceptance of his condition and compliance with treatment. Um, but he would also then occasionally want to bring in a parent towards the end of the consultation to chat through things with them and give them a bit of a rundown and an update of what was happening. And it was interesting that we had to look at that flexible kind of change in the way we were looking after him, that one size definitely didn't fit all. And that for him, that bespoke approach, looking at that more independent nature that he was developing and seeing that as most important and seeing him as the most important person in the middle of all that um, helped us to get some engagement. Um, and we then were able to get him some psychological support as well through our young persons clinic, which really helped him to come to terms with things and to start taking his treatment a bit more regularly. Now, I'm not saying that from there things were plain sailing because I think he was a demonstration to me as a clinician working with young people of all of the different things that can uh, challenge us through adolescence. So we definitely had a period where uh, alcohol consumption came into the, to the mix. Uh, we had a period where he was having severe episodes of hypoglycemia. Um, and we even had a period where he did have a depressive episode and needed to have a look at that in more detail. Um, but certainly, um, yes, it, it definitely stress and storm uh, are, are two words that, that could be applied to his situation. I wonder what you think about, about, about that case study. Yeah, well, uh, um, lots of things come to mind, really. Firstly, well done. It sounds like it was very well managed. Um, uh, Another, the first thing that occurred to me, and we haven't talked about this case before, is just thinking that of our listeners, some will work in hospitals where the transition in the organisation happens at 16, others will be when it's at 18, some even longer than that. So there's a few country, a few hospitals in the country where adolescent wards go up to 19. Yes. Interesting to think in the case of your patient, age 16, it sounded like he needed more adult care early on. Absolutely. And, and some of our patients when turning 18 really aren't ready for adult care because they're not fully independent um, and they don't, might not have the insight or the or the independence you know to to make decisions for themselves so that's one thing for us to all consider now the second thing I've just jotted down here is uh, you know about what happens in adolescence what we expect to happen and is normal and that involves periods of rebellion uh, for some and risk taking for others and it's a natural way of the adolescent mind adjusting and what's called individuating so pushing the boundaries uh, pushing back against parents pushing against authority um that's not a new thing in adolescence you know that's always been around um and so i think probably some of what was going on in that boy's care was about what needed to happen anyway um, as a product of his you know developing identity yes. but he had this crushing thing of a, of a horrible diagnosis really which he would have understood bits of I imagine at that age but not have uh, understood in its entirety we have to bear in mind that adolescents will have a different perception of risk but also different perception of time and responsibility from adults um, and that young person's uh, sense of priorities will be different from from his parents from yours as you know the clinicians you're very focused on on blood sugars of course and the long-term picture you know he probably wanted to know whether he was going to be able to go out clubbing that Friday or whatever it is and um, we have to bear in mind um, 
what it might feel like. Can we put ourselves in the shoes of that young person and think, what was I doing at that age? How would I have coped with this uh, really life changing situation? Would I have understood it myself, you know, even as a bright future doctor and so on? And, and the other thing I've written down here is that um, times of stress, and this is well recognised within the sort of family therapy field, times of stress can unearth pre-existing uh, fractures in family dynamics and so on. And family therapists sometimes talk about the key times of entries, exits and illnesses. So entries being new people in a family system, births basically, exits, deaths of significant others and, and finally illnesses. And so these things destabilise family units that might have been working very hard to just about get by. And so I wonder whether for him or for other patients, it sort of unearths the outstanding frustrations about communication that are there in, in the first place, really. What, what you describe really nicely is that um, that he became central to his care. Um, and one of the badges that's often used when talking about tr transitions is no decisions about me without me. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that one, but yes, a, a, a lot of the time I think we'll sort of bumble along and think, well, you know, we need to talk to the parents because only they're going to understand this or let's not bring this young person into this conversation because they're not ready. Well, actually, lots of them might well be ready and we need to test that out through assessing their ability to understand and their and their capacity and their consent and all those vital things that we do with adults kind of instinctively. Um, I guess what you did was you gave him some options as well, and um, it sounds like you had a collaborative conversation. I'm wondering how you normally go about ensuring that you work collaboratively with young people. Yeah, I mean, I think that is so, so important. Collaboration with us and the young person, but also collaboration between teams. So I think in this case, that really did have to happen between the paediatric team who wanted to make progress and make an impact and help this young man but also realising that when things weren't going well, they needed to take a step back and, and, and look at a different way and collaborate with us so that we could sort of take the reins and, and work with our, our young person. Um, but I, I think when we think about transition, particularly in long-term conditions, but also in young people being diagnosed with something for the first time or presenting to acute care, I think a lot of it is about planning and communication and recognising our young person's needs and asking them what their needs are and what direction of travel do they want to take rather than making assumptions. Again, that one size does not sit up, fit all at all uh, in, in young person's care. Um, I think we really need to be flexible and responsive to the situation, which I guess some people do find quite hard. Uh, but I think that that is so important with, with, with young people, particularly with, with a, a medical condition. Yeah, uh, there's a lovely terms about um, flexibility uh, and and responsivity, um, and I think also having a you know a shared understanding of the problem is really key. So when I'm meeting with with young people and families, I usually say, and look, I have the privilege of often having an hour appointment, but saying at the outset, I want us all to agree what the issues are here, or get as close as we can to them. And having a shared understanding between teams where there's a transition is really key. We're not actually, I'm, I'm afraid to say, good at this in mental health because we often have a precipice between CAMS, Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services, and mm -hmm. ADAMS, Adult Mental Health Services, because we have different thresholds for care. And I, I think I've always thought that's a real shame. I've always had a fantasy that, you know, if you've got diabetes, you've got diabetes and, and no adult diabetologist is going to say, 
uh, well, we're not taking on this child because we don't believe in their diabetes, for example. Yeah. However, they might go from a position where they've had a clinic where they're having more regular checkups and maybe there's been a nurse specialist who they've had email contact with and, you know, regular check ins because they've been a child. And yes. then suddenly they might feel a void about, well, hang on a second, where's all that gone? And I think transitions clinics, when they work well, recognise that it's important to not leave a family in limbo, which includes the parents or the carers. You know, often in paediatrics, we're very good at supporting the family around. Yes. And then, you know, this child, whether they've got diabetes or epilepsy, whatever, if they say, well, look, I'm 18, I don't want my family involved, not only do the, the parents or carers then get held at arm's length, um, but a lot of the support structures kind of, you know, fall away. And and that can be really challenging, I think. The young person that decides, I'm I'm on my own now. I don't I don't want anyone around me, whereas actually really they, they still quite need it, to be honest. Absolutely. And I think I think that's one of the complexities of working with young people is that they're there is family, there are parents involved, especially if it's a long-term condition that has endured since childhood. And um, that family are used to providing a great degree of support. And it's very hard for them to let go of that as well. And I think that a good transition process involves planning for everyone involved. So when we do it well, we've mm. included the young person and the parents or carers in that conversation so that everyone is on the same page and prepared and ready for the move to a different clinic or which may even be in the same building it could be in a different hospital it could be a different building different in different specialties and conditions but to prepare them for what to expect and what the structure will be of that clinic is super important and i think is really ensconced in all evidence and guidance that we have around transition for people with long-term conditions i think you know, uh, central to all of that is recognising that young people are different and that there is that risk that they fall through the cracks. So if we can get transition right, if we can get adolescent care right, then what we are hoping to achieve, of course, is that the young person comes through into adult services equipped with the skills to manage their condition, equipped to function day to day in the outside world um, and not get lost to follow up, to not get, become disengaged with the service with that risk of possible poor outcomes, which obviously in type 1 diabetes in particular can be catastrophic. You know, death due to misadventure is clearly a risk there and we 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 need to try and do everything in our power to make that system work the best we can. So healthcare systems need to design their services to try and um, help to achieve that. And clinicians need to be trained and have the right skill and behaviour set to do their best to manage this and to negotiate this period of life. Yeah, and they're, they're actually good models to, to follow in this. So a really easily accessible one online, which you can, can Google is the Ready Steady Go model. Uh, I mean, it sounds very absolutely. It sounds very childlike, doesn't it? But for those who aren't aware of it, it's a basically again, it's a shared conversation. It says, "Look, the, the the ready bit is when we're explaining to you about the service and preparing you sort of psychologically about what that's going to be like, what's going to be different. The steady bit might involve going to visit the clinical environment. You know, what does that outpatient look like? It hasn't got giraffes all over the wall, for example. It's you know, it's got." posters about STIs or something um, 
and 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 the process that goes on usually over several months actually of conversations and building exercises before the actual go transition so it should never feel like a cliff edge and, and a really good um, analogy I've I've heard used before is about if you're planning to to move house which everyone knows is a really stressful life event but the process goes that you decide you want to move somewhere, you know, to bigger or a new area and you explore your options and you get advice from people who've done it before and tips. You visit all of those places. You know, you don't commit until you've seen what you're signing up for. And then you choose the one you like. And and ideally, you say when you want to move. And it's very different in transitions healthcare if it goes badly because it's more like your house has been flooded. And you suddenly have to do something with lots of um, unexpected components, lots of uncertainties. And that's a disaster psychologically. And that is a recipe for people rejecting care and uh, and becoming more ill, really. So have that analogy in your mind, I think, uh, listeners, because um, that's what you want to talk about and, and use that analogy with young people as well. You know, this is what we want to avoid it feel like feeling like for you. And final point, I think I'd say on that on transitions personally, um, is asking them, you know, you're, you're the centre of care. Uh, what is it that you want? What, what are the timescales you have in mind? And if there's flexibility around when they move to adult services, uh, then great. If there's the potential for them to have a few months longer in paediatrics because life circumstances dictate that or whatever, then most hospitals working as one organisation should be able to facilitate that, I would suggest. And it's interesting, there was probably the biggest transition study, a prospective five-year programme of research that was done by Northumbria University, where they were focused on developmentally appropriate healthcare and how we can deal with this process more effectively as clinicians and organisations. But as part of that, they actually looked at what matters to young people. So there's loads of bells and whistles in a lot of the documentation out there, like Ready, Steady, Go, like You're Welcome from the Department of Health. Um, there's uh, nice guidance on transition. And there's lots of things that we can do in organisations to make the process go better. But when it comes down to it, what mattered to young people was not all of those things, um, but they wanted to know who they were moving to wanted to meet their new team if possible prior to their transition. They wanted to be involved in the process and be educated so that they could become more confident with self-management of their condition uh, and develop self-efficacy. Yeah. And the third thing was to be given the option to have a parent come in with them when they went in for their consultation. So again, putting them in the centre and not assuming they want to come in and speak by themselves, but saying there could be an argument for loan consulting and developing those consultation skills independently yourself. But actually, if you want to have your supportive, significant person in with you, then that's absolutely fine. And it's interesting that because I think I have heard of occasions where young people have felt their transition process wasn't managed well where it was assumed that as soon as they hit the adolescent clinic, they would come in by themselves. And at age 14, they've maybe never been anywhere without their parent driving them there to their appointments um, and have never gone into a clinic room without a mum or a dad there to, to support them through that process. So um, that was really interesting. Uh, and we'll certainly make sure that we signpost to that developmentally appropriate healthcare evidence 
And, and I would say even more significant if you if you learn that um, the person you're looking after has a degree of of learning disability or um, social communication disorder like like autism, uh, you know these things can be a bit overlooked. I think in yes. amongst the, the medical concerns, um, and I suppose that uh, some young people will be by the nature of those problems more dependent. Or you know I, I see a lot of kids with ADHD, and the chances of them making it to an appointment. Uh, with their, you know, impulsivity, forgetfulness, and so on, is is pretty slim. But mm -hmm. we we actually record rather than DNA did not attend. Uh, we record WNB was not brought because it's the, you know it's the parents yeah. and carers responsibility to get them to us, and then suddenly they turn eighteen and it's did not attend. It's all on them. So um, I think you're absolutely right. You know, saying as part of your management plan, even if you're twenty three, do you want your mum to come? because we can arrange that. You know, yeah. It should be possible that those letters also go to the mum and dad if that's what they'd like. Okay, so we, should we move on? Because we were going to think about some other things as well. We're going to think about communication strategies specifically. And um, I regularly speak to even paediatricians about this because paediatricians are great at talking to, to kids, but sometimes feel most comfortable with talking to, to younger kids. Um, and some people can feel quite daunted about adolescent conversations and we were going to have a think weren't we about sort of what what to do about that um i was going to give you some of my my bits of advice really i mean some the first top, is top tips some, and strategies would be good some top tips yeah and I, look the main thing is that whilst i i probably am an expert in this area i'd like to think so it's not because um i've studied textbooks in it it has come from uh, from from practice okay and from taking some risks and and being bold and being able to take a one down position and say look actually look I got that wrong didn't I um or I I'm really sorry I asked about that because I can see that was upsetting for you but I, I hope you can see how it's important that I've done that um a lot of it is about signposting from the outset so when you're having a conversation with a young person I, I always tell them look the stuff I'm going to ask you about that's going to be difficult there's stuff you're going to probably feel uncomfortable about and you might wish I'd never asked. Um, there's stuff that I might ask about which you're perfectly entitled to say is none of my business. And just by doing that signposting um, uh, and um, strategizing with them, they start to feel more comfortable with you. If you do it in, in a confident fashion, you know, in the way I'm sort of talking now, it tends to relax people. And um, I also say to them, look, you can tell me absolutely anything you want. And I encourage you to tell me everything you want. Of course, you have to give um, the signposts about confidentiality. And I always define what confidentiality is. And I even would do that with an 18 or 19 year old. Don't assume they know what that means. And don't assume if you say, do you know what confidentiality is? They say yes, that they know what that means. So I say to them, you know, these this, this is the boundaries of the care. Things you tell me, I will hold in confidence. However, if you told me something really significantly worrying about risks to you or other people, I might have to share that uh, with, with, with someone else. And saying right from the outset, I'm going to have to share all this with the team anyway, because you don't want to be in a situation where a young person tells you something very intimate about themselves. You know, they tell you that they were raped a year ago or something like that. And then you go and tell the team because that's important for organising the next bits of their care. And then you're held to account if you said that was just between me and you. So setting the parameters is, is really important. And 
And then having conversations that aren't just about physical health are massively important. And I appreciate that in your clinical environments, you will have much more limited time than me. But I tend to start off my consultations with young people, my first assessment by saying, of course, I'm going to ask you about what's difficult in life, you know, uh, which ways are you struggling? But actually, before I ask any of that, I want to get to know you because I'm actually more interested in you, in you than your illness. That's I can say that truly um others might be a bit more un uncomfortable ground to say that but you know if we don't understand about their education stuff we don't understand about their employment about their family situation you know we can wave goodbye to good quality holistic care to be honest so i often say things like do you know what what else is underway in your life i know you've just been diagnosed with diabetes but tell me just before this what was going on was life good? Was anything difficult for you? What do you enjoy doing? Um, what gives meaning to life? And I say, if we weren't talking about your epilepsy slash cystic fibrosis slash eating disorder, what would we be talking about? You know, what might you bring to a doctor or a trusted uh, adult to do that? And you've got to be bold to have that kind of conversation. And you might be wary that you're going to bog yourself down with a 20 minute conversation you don't have time for. I promise you it's time well invested because you'll find that one conversation like that is prophylactic medicine. So getting down to their level early on, not trying too hard to be um you know, too cool and available. Don't pretend to understand their musical taste if you don't know anything about it, but be keen to learn and be keen to explore with them. Those are really key bits. Yeah, I think I would totally wholeheartedly agree with all that you have said. And I think that it has definitely been a great technique during my young person's clinics to talk about the things that are not to do with the diabetes, because they really don't want that to be their definition. Um, and would much prefer to have conversations about what's happening at school and where how their holidays have been. And those those conversations actually open up things that you need to know in terms of their long term condition, like they've started to drink alcohol at the weekends at parties. And I need to help them to then have a safe strategy for managing that. And if you don't have those conversations about what they get up to at the weekend, then you sometimes don't get that information volunteered directly to you. Do you ever use any of the tools? The one I usually teach on is called the HEADS tool. Are you familiar with that one? Yes, yes, I do sometimes use that. Absolutely. It kind of is a good aid memoir to work work through all the different aspects of, of a young person's life, isn't it? Yeah, it's a good. I'll give the acronym because it, it bears repeating. Um, nearly all paediatricians know this one. But so it's it's HEADS, as you'd expect it to be spelled H-E-A-D-S. But then there's two more S's on the end. So it's HEADS. And uh, the first one is H is for home. Uh, so exploring the home environment, you know, who's there, what are the relationships like, etc. The second is education slash employment. So it's kind of two E's really. The next is activities. So what do they get up to? Um, you know, what are their what are their hobbies? What are their interests? That's just about engagement, really. But it might be you can work something around the diabetes into that conversation. Uh, the D is for drugs slash drinking. So um, that's pretty self-explanatory. Everyone can take that kind of history. And then three S's are sex and I put slash sexuality, actually, um, and identity. Uh, Self-harm and suicide is the next S. And finally, safety, which includes things like um, social media and conversations about 
you know, is this is there anyone who is who is exploiting you? Has anyone made you feel uncomfortable or pressured you into doing something? And uh, and I've used this kind of technique and found out all manner of things, including um, you know stuff about county lines, drug running, and all that sort of stuff. It actually has that it's been studied, and the heads technique has a reported yield of one in one in three for identifying concerns that then warrant further investigation. So that's to say it's very worth doing, isn't it? Because it will lead you down uh, fruitful pathways. Definitely. And from there, Rory, should we segue into a conversation about mental health? And, you know, as part of our head strategy, we might be having a conversation with a young person and they may allude to the fact that they're having trouble with their mood or perhaps aren't engaging so well in consultations in clinic or their parents raise a concern. How should we as physicians be approaching that sort of information when we when we meet up with someone in clinic and and what sort of things should we be asking? Yeah, that's a good question. I'd be interested to know how, how you manage it in a second. But um, I think that people tend to ask two broad questions. Um, you know, everyone knows about the kind of funnel thing where you go from broad to narrow questions. That's a good communication tool. But for lots of um, adolescents who might not be particularly um, emotionally uh, sophisticated yet, or they might have a degree of, here's a new word for you, probably alexithymia, A being an absence of lexi words for thymia mood. Uh, you know, for lots of adolescents, you say, you tell me, you know, how have you been feeling? I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah. Shrug, shrug of the shoulders. So we might we need to be a bit more directive. Actually, we need to give options. Uh, we need to say, I, I wonder whether you're feeling angry about this. And, you know, then they can shoot that down and say, no, that's not relevant. But the question says, tell me how you're feeling about your diabetes diagnosis might not really get you very far. So offering some some ideas of our own about what they might be feeling. And I often if I'm offering a hypothesis, I'll say, look, I may well be wrong here. But I think what I'm observing is that you're really, you know, you're really pissed off or you, you're really feeling the impact of this socially or whatever it is. And then we can use very basic rating scales. I don't often see this done um, in hospital notes, and I think it's a real shame. But people worry maybe that psychiatry doesn't have much uh, sort of scientific validity or something. But if I'm if I'm asking you and Rahana now about um, about your mood, I could say, tell me about your mood. Or I could say, look, I'm, I'm inventing a scale here. And on my scale, 10 out of 10 is feeling as as positive, happy uh, and uh, and you know, futuristic as, as it could be. And zero is I'm desperate, hopeless and helpless and life is not worth living. And I could ask you, you know, in the last two weeks, what score do you think you've averaged on that scale? And it's really meaningful because A, the young person sees you're interested in learning about that. B, they give you a score, let's say it's six out of 10, and you've got an immediate follow up question, which is, all right, so what would it take to get to be an eight out of 10? What would need to be different in your life? Or if it's a two out of 10, you might ask, Ooh, that is really low, isn't it? What's stopping you from being lower than that? So what are the protective factors? So from a very simple scale, you can get a sense of, um, you know, what needs to be different and also the variability. So then I say, well, OK, you've told me you're a two out of 10, but is that always the same every day? And then some adolescents will say, oh, no, well, yesterday I was an eight because I was out at a gig and it's brilliant. But, you know, today I'm a zero. And that immediately tells me this isn't a young person with a depressive illness, actually. The good thing about the scales is that if they if they tell you something in the moment, it's only a snapshot. But if you then ex ex 
expand on it, it leads to better conversations. So there's that bit. And there's also the boldness to ask about difficult and risky subjects. So we need to ask, I would argue, any patient who has any degree of um, distress or difficulty in their life about mood and about self-harm and suicide. And look, if you ask everyone, you may find that, uh, you know, 80% say that's not relevant to them. But I think a surprising number will say things like, yes, I sometimes have uh, thoughts of not wanting to be alive. That doesn't mean that they all need referrals to liaison psychiatry, by the way, because it can be a normal life experience. But we've got to be bold and have those conversations because it then allows care to progress in a better way. That's the best way I can describe it. Have you got any techniques about how you sort of talk to a 19 year old about their psychological well-being? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I do take the direct approach um, because I think that with diabetes in particular, but I suspect the same is true of all long term conditions that a young person is trying to manage alongside the rest of their life. If their mood is not good and they're feeling distressed, whether it's due to the diabetes or due to some other factor in their lives, they can't manage the diabetes. Um, and so there is no point in me having a consultation that is glucose centric if I can see that a young person in front of me or hear from them if, I, if I'm on the phone with them, um, if I can tell that things are not right. So I think direct questioning is uh, is very important and that would be what I would employ. But I really like the idea of your scale and we use scales for so many things, don't we? But actually to use that one to 10 uh, system to ask someone to assess themselves and compare it day to day I think you're right that really gives you a much greater idea as to how big of a problem it is yeah and actually look if you want to use um, a more specific tool then the, then the two that liaison psychiatry teams really like are the PHQ-9 that's freely available download it from the internet and the GAD-7 GAD-7 so these are two very quick one-sider tools that give you a likelihood of depression, PHQ-9, GAD, uh, anxiety scores. So if you're making referrals to liaison psychiatry and you can say, look, this is what they've scored on the PHQ-9 and the GAD-7, you're more likely to get a consult in the American terminology. Um, but you're, you're also, you know, you might it might be that a patient would prefer to, to write it down for you in that way. Speaking of which, getting patients to, to write down their thoughts and feelings is really very good with yeah. adolescents who might have no interest in doing it face to face with you. What about you say, look, next time you come to this clinic, I see it's been difficult today. You've not wanted to talk to me. Next time, do you want to write some stuff down and bring it in advance or email it through to the secretary and, you know, they can give it to me uh, beforehand? Yeah, that sounds good. And in general, Rory, how I mean, we talked about the the sort of crisis of mental health problems, particularly post-COVID, uh, if, if we are truly post-COVID. Um, but it definitely feels like more young people are um, presenting with mental health disturbance um, and with eating disorder as well. And I just wondered if you could uh, talk a bit about that. Yeah, uh, I often talk on this. I think it's, um, you know, COVID's been a disaster for lots of reasons. But if you're an adolescent, uh, you have lost in the last few years uh, any semblance really of um, of control, of routine, uh, predictability and uncertainties are manageable by some, but uncertainties, uh, especially if you've got a condition like autism um, or you're, uh, you know, a certain personality type who 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 needs a lot of assurance and so on. 
that they've really struggled actually and of the people we've seen a massive massive expansion of the number of young people with eating restriction and that has been a method of managing emotions but also a sense of control so lots of these presentations have actually been quite atypical of anorexia they've not had uh, body dysmorphic ideas fear of fatness etc they've come uh, some of them it actually like food and food fluid refusal and have ended up ng fed and all this uh, kind of mm -hmm. stuff so really really tricky but i think um that is a representation of um what has gone on for these poor uh young people and you know some have flourished actually in in lockdown uh you know some of my patients say it's the best time of my life uh being at home so it's not it's not always the case but unfortunately we are seeing rising rates of depression and anxiety and we were seeing that even prior to covid so this is a storm that's a wider storm and not an individual one that uh, is not abating. And do you have any top tips for how us physicians might might talk about, I guess, eating disorders in particular? I think that's something that we have been seeing more and more through our diabetes clinics as there is an extra tool available in terms of insulin emission to create that weight loss. And that can be such a dangerous game. Um, and, and I think sometimes we aren't great at asking directly about food and body image. Yeah, absolutely. And we've and and these young people, lots of them will have won't have a formed idea in their mind about why they're doing what they're doing. So unless we ask, look, is, are you actually intending to lose weight? They may not quite have, have got there when they're thinking, if you like. Um, and sometimes broad questions like, can you tell me about your relationship with your body are good? but you might find they aren't specific enough. So can you tell me um, aspects about your body you like or you dislike? It's quite a good intro to getting onto, you know, do you, do you think that you're fat? But again, we can't shy away from that question. I think lots of people might. They pull a punch on it. They think, I can't ask about fatness. Yeah. But we've got to do that. And we've got to ask questions that show we are making hypotheses ourselves. You know, I wonder whether the fact you're not using your insulin correctly is because you're trying to lose weight and they can say no that's nothing to do with it yeah um, but I, I would ask um, you guys as my colleagues to be asking about the core features of anorexia so please we're seeing more and more young people presenting with eating disorders read the chapter in your psychiatry textbook from when you were um, a medical school about what anorexia is so that if you're making a referral to someone like me you can say I think this is quite typical of anorexia versus this isn't but I don't know why they're not eating um again I think I've just repeated myself but be you know be bold ask the brave questions and do it without uh feeling uncomfortable about it that's really helpful so I just want to say thank you to everyone for taking the time to listen to Rory and I chew the fat about adolescent health it's such an important subject about which we are very passionate and we want to share that with all of you. I think this is relevant to everyone working across all specialties, uh, whether you are still a trainee or indeed are already a consultant, but want to explore this in more detail to feel more confident in your everyday practice when you're dealing with young people. Um, but thank you again. So we will make sure that we link to any important resources for further reading if you want to take a deeper dive into these issues. That will include uh, the developmentally appropriate healthcare toolkit that came out of the Northumbria research that I mentioned earlier. And for those who want to look at adolescent health in much more detail, there is the excellent e-learning for health adolescent health project. Thank you very much.